Hello Gateway, it's uh, so good to talk to you today, even if it is through these temporary measures that we're enduring of uh, social distancing and so on. I'm uh, still thinking of you and praying for you daily. I'm praying that in these days that your strength and resolve in God would be increased and that when we finally come back together, um, that uh, we'll come back greater in heart and greater in number and greater in our depth of devotion to Jesus, our King. I hope you're keeping well wherever you are. Today it's Palm Sunday and uh, next next week we celebrate Easter. This is the, the high point of the Christian calendar and the events of Palm Sunday, as we'll explore today in just a moment, mark the beginning of the Easter story. This is often referred to as the Holy Week. Um, so if you're not a regular attender of church, that's great. You're very welcome to join us this morning. In fact, this is probably a great time for you to uh, join us because um, this will be a chance for you to uh, explore some of the claims that we as Christians make, most of which centre around the events of this week when Jesus prepares to go to the cross and uh, dies and, uh, and, and what that means for us as he's resurrected three days later. Palm Sunday reflects the day that Jesus made his way into Jerusalem after spending his ministry kind of largely operating in the towns and villages outside of Jerusalem. He was healing the sick and saving the lost and preaching the good news of this new life in, in God. And uh, now he's kind of coming out of any sort of sense of uh, obscurity up to Israel's capital city, the central point of um, Israel's religious life and their political hierarchy, Jerusalem. Uh, let's get straight into our text today. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab that uh, and turn with me now to Matthew 21 verse 1. The words will also come up on the screen if you haven't got a Bible with you, um, but you might want to follow along in, in the word as well. Um, and uh, what we're going to read now is the account of Jesus and the disciples who've been working their way through the villages nearby moving onwards to Jerusalem. This passage of scripture is um, called Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. Uh, in some versions, it's, uh, no, it's sometimes referred to as the triumphal entry. Let's read together, Matthew 21, 1. It says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord has need of them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Now a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, whilst others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. 
Okay, so let's just track back a little bit to what's actually happening here. It's the Jewish festival of Passover, and traditionally Jews from all over the place make their way to Jerusalem to worship in their tens of thousands at the centerpiece of the city, the temple. And as they begin this journey, Jesus takes them aside and explains to them that they're going up to Jerusalem and that everything written by the prophets about Jesus is about to be fulfilled, that he will be handed over to the authorities and the unbelievers and that they'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and that on the third day he will rise again. So Jesus and the disciples are among this huge crowd making their way to Jerusalem, but en route they've been in a, in a nearby village called Bethany, where a friend of Jesus, Lazarus, has died. You may know the story. Lazarus uh, dies, Jesus goes to the town, he weeps over his dead friend, and then he calls Lazarus out of death and Lazarus rises from the tomb and he strips off his death clothes and uh, he rises up to life. And this incredible miracle sets off a chain of events that ultimately leads to Jesus being crucified. And so as Jesus enters Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, there are naturally crowds waiting for him. They're cheering him. They're throwing their cloaks on the floor before him like a red carpet and waving palm branches to herald him. And, and crucially, and likely with the miracle of uh, Lazarus in their minds, they are, they're hailing him as the Messiah. And they're crying out, Hosanna, which means, oh, save us. Now, Jerusalem at the time was ruled by the Romans, and the job of the Romans wasn't so much to suppress the practices of Jerusalem as much as it was to keep the peace and to ensure allegiance to Rome and to Caesar. And so a mystic coming in from the wilderness to crowds of adorers who are calling him king and begging him to save them, that's going to catch their attention and not necessarily in a good way. And similarly, the Jewish religious leaders are also on high alert because Jerusalem was full of mystics and false prophets and people claiming to be the Messiah. And their job was to keep the Jewish believers in strict accordance with the scriptures, totally devoted to God and to keeping his law. And so when this kind of random so-called miracle worker with no real religious pedigree or training from a lowly family in a backwater town comes into Jerusalem to the acclaim of the people, this also sets them on high alert as well. And worse than that, the people are referring to Jesus as the Messiah, the, the promised saviour. And Jesus isn't denying it. In fact, throughout his ministry, Jesus has been saying things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, or I am the bread of heaven sent down by my Father. It's no wonder that in verse 10 of this passage, it says that the whole city was stirred. That word stirred, that's the same word from which we get the modern word seismic, which is, as you know, a word used to describe the force of earthquakes. The storm clouds have gathered around Jesus in the most profound way. Tensions are running super high. The Romans are already on high alert for the vast influx of crowds coming to the festival. And the Jewish religious leaders are similarly concerned about this man claiming to be God's son. And they're already thinking of ways to eliminate this problem. And right in the middle of it, 
amidst all the pomp and the ceremony of the Passover surrounding the temple, amidst all of the religious and political tension, amidst all the uncertainty, the seismic shifting of the mood in the city, here comes this common man with his ragtag followers and he's riding a donkey and he's claiming to be the son of God. And the reports that follow him are that he's healing the blind and he's casting out demons and that he's raising the dead. It's, it's drama on an epic scale. And because Jesus knows how this week will end, he also knows that his arrival in the city is pulling on all these cultural levers and setting up the inevitable showdown with the religious leaders and the people and the Roman authorities. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, it says in verse 10, the city was stirred like an earthquake. Okay, there are some important things that uh, I want us to see in this story. And one of them is just how central to Jesus's mission the cross was. That it wasn't in some way an afterthought or a band-aid over a cut or it took him by surprise, but it was the anticipated, prophesied plan A of God. That would mean that we, who had distanced ourselves from God, could again be brought close and know life and relationship in him. Let's look again at uh, what is said in this passage about Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, which fulfills an earlier prophecy. Verse 4 and 5, it says, All this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, or say to Jerusalem, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This whole story actually fulfills an Old Testament prophecy from about 500 years ago when uh, a man, a prophet called Zechariah, predicted that a time would come when the long-expected, long-promised, legitimate heir to the kingship of Israel, their very own monarch, would come. And he would arrive on the back of a donkey and he would save all of Israel by overturning their plight and defeating their enemies and ushering in an era of peace. That's what the cross was meant to achieve. That's what the cross was always meant to achieve. Peace with God and a life in him characterised, in fact, unable to shake free of, literally prisoners to hope. That's what they would achieve. We've just finished a series in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 19 and 20 tells us that God chose Jesus to be our ransom before the world even began. That's how much he loved you. That's how much he was prepared to give for you. That's how much he deeply desired to father and protect you and to be in relationship with you. And he did this always knowing that we would turn our backs on him and would need saving from the destruction that we would choose and the rebellion that we would choose instead of the life and relationship that we could have in him. The cross was always plan A. The cross was always the plan A of a loving father who knew how much he'd have to give and how far he'd have to travel to redeem us and save us from walking off a cliff edge to certain and eternal death. I want to take us quickly back about 1500 years from this to uh, a man called Jacob who had 12 sons, at least one of whom you'll probably remember as Joseph, the same Joseph with the uh, kind of the coat of many colours. And on his deathbed, Joseph 
blesses his sons. This old man is dying and his sons gather around him and he goes one by one around the room pronouncing blessing on them. And when he gets to his son Judah, he, he utters something quite mysterious to him. Now, Judah was the son who was the ancestor of the tribe of Judah. And this is the tribe that Jesus ultimately comes from. Uh, Jesus was out of Judah's bloodline. Now, bearing that in mind, this is what Jacob says to Judah, his son, in Genesis 49.10. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he, who, to whom it belongs, shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. And this part's crucial. It says, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. In this prophecy, we see an allusion to a king who would come from Judah, who would be like a lion, but there's this reference to a donkey that would be tethered to a choice vine. That's often how Israel was referred to, and that this ruler, this donkey-riding ruler, would have supreme victory and authority over his enemies, and that there would be such peace and abundance in the land that he'd be able to literally wash his garments in wine due to the abundance of the harvest that he would bring. Jesus was uh, the king who would one day come riding on a donkey, entering into human existence, living, breathing, feeling pain and emotion as a man, whose central and pre-purposed aim was to come into the place of the people of God with one sole objective, to die on a cross. And in so doing, make a way for all people of all backgrounds to come and receive mercy and to know relationship and life in its fullness with God. Come to Jesus today. Whether for the first time or the hundredth time, our humble king went to the cross for you. And there is no requirement for salvation in him other than to humble yourself, to recognise that he alone is God and that only he can give you salvation. The next thing that we should see in this story is how important it is that we have a, a right view of God and an appropriate expectation of how he works in our lives. This is in particularly important right now in a world that has been stirred in a very different sort of way and has left so many people wondering what on earth is going on or why might God allow something like a coronavirus to happen? Note how quickly the Holy Week uh, deteriorates in the way that it does. On Palm Sunday, the crowds cried, Hosanna. And by Friday of that week, they cried, crucify him. How do we get from one place to another so quickly? Well, it's, it's because the people had the wrong expectation of the Messiah and the wrong expectation of what he was actually there to do. For them, it was all about the overthrow of their Roman oppressors and the uh, relief and release from captivity to the state and the state's oppressive taxation on them. In their view, the Messiah was meant to come and kind of flex his uh, political and military muscle and raise Israel up as a national force. We all recently witnessed the, uh, the Brexit story with the Leave campaign slogan being, let's take back control. 
Those are incredibly emotive words and obviously resonated with the British people. And, and why wouldn't they? Nobody likes to think that they're out of control or they've lost control. And so, of course, it's human nature in a situation like the one we're talking about this morning to want to take back control. That's what the people wanted on Palm Sunday. That's what we still want. But Jesus hasn't come back to wrest control back from the state. And the people should have got that idea when he came through the gates on a donkey rather than a, on a war horse. He's a king and he's coming back to take control, but not in a way that the people expected. After all, what kind of a king chooses as his coronation ceremony death on a cross? It's a different kind of king. It's a new kind of king. It's a, a king about whom it had been prophesied that would enter Jerusalem on a donkey and restore rule and peace from one side of the earth to the other, but not by striking at Rome with the sword. Instead, he would be struck by Rome and by Israel. And therein was his rule established and all of the forces of death and darkness defeated. But the people didn't want it that way. They wanted to see Caesar toppled. They wanted to see revenge. They wanted freedom, but they wanted it their way. I'm currently, like many of you, indoors for 12 weeks. Uh, my wife, Victoria, is considered a, an extremely high risk uh, for coronavirus. And so she's had a letter from the NHS telling her, and by implication, all of us, that we're not to leave the house at all, not, not even for exercise. I don't like that. I want my freedom and I want my freedom to do the kinds of things that I like, to go to the beach and to see my friends and to go shopping for useless things. But that kind of freedom right now is particularly bad for me, for us as a family. In fact, there is a very real possibility that the kind of freedom that I crave could lead to death. How often do we look at God uh, and expect deliverance or healing or freedom or um, something like that with the wrong expectations or motives? What do we do when he says no? How do we respond when he chooses to allow a coronavirus to upend our way of life? Will we still choose to believe that he's king, that he's sovereign, that he's loving, that he's good, that he knows all of our needs much better than we do? And that, it, as it says in Romans 8, 28 and 29, that he's working all of these things, coronavirus and lockdown and Brexit or whatever, together for our good and for his glory. We don't want to be like those who cry Hosanna today and crucify him next week when we struggle to find eggs or kitchen roll in the supermarkets. God always gives us what we would ask for if we knew what he does. Knowing that fact is how we learn to live contented in him and what he's doing. And so I say to you, surrender to him. Trust him, trust all of his plans. Know that in this life and the next, all of his ways are good and will bear good fruit in your life according to his perfect will. He's not bothered with the establishment of your kingdom. He's establishing his kingdom. And we, the people of God, we're, we're vice regents in that kingdom. We're co-rulers, full participants. 
That's what our humility and surrender and right expectations of God allow us to see. Surrender to him. Trust him. Trust him today. Trust him always. His ways are good. Finally, if Palm Sunday teaches us anything, it's it's that the king is coming. We see the king coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and he goes to the temple and he gets arrested and he goes to the cross and he makes all things right. But we still live with a sense of the now but not yet of God's kingdom fully being established over the whole earth. One of the things I particularly love about that verse in Genesis where Jacob is blessing uh, his son Judah is that it talks of a donkey being tied to a faithful, uh, sorry, fruitful grapevine. And vines speak of abundance and blessing. Wine that flows is a blessing on the people. That's one of the reasons that uh, Jesus announces this new age to come by turning water into wine at a wedding in Cana. The king has come, but the king will come again. We need to live with a, a readiness and an expectation and joyful anticipation of this. I've, I've had cause, as I'm sure you have, to anticipate this in greater measure over these past few weeks and to look ahead to the age to come as the news headlines have been full of talk of death and uh, home lockdown. The, the king of glory, the one who is the way and the truth and the life, the firstborn of many sons, the leader of the resurrection parade is coming again. And this time he won't be riding on a donkey. He'll be riding the war horse of all victory for all time. Listen to this from Revelation 19.11. This was written by John, who was a, a friend of Jesus and had this incredible prophetic vision of the end of days. He says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. There's that word again. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. People of God, our, our King has come and our King is coming again. And when he does, it will be to fully and finally do away with all evil, to bring the eternal peace and flowing wine abundance that has always been promised, to release all people from the lockdown of sin and death and to wipe away every tear from every eye and to bring us into the fullness of our design to be with God forever. And it's completely available to you today. Let me, let me finish with these, the last words of the Bible, as an invitation from Jesus to us all this morning to come to the King who has already come to us. It says, let him who hears these words say, come. 
Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Jesus, who testifies to these things, says, yes, I am coming soon. Let's come to our King today with humility and surrender and readiness and right expectation and great hope of his soon return. Let's pray. King Jesus, thank you that uh, you were the king who came on Palm Sunday, but you're the king who's coming again. Thank you that the Holy Week represents all that is needed by mankind to be right with God, your death and resurrection on a cross. And we look forward now, Lord, to seeing the fulfilment of your plan in its ultimate um, purpose. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would do us good. Would you help your words take fruit in our, take root in our lives and bear fruit in our lives, we ask. Be glorified, Lord. Amen.